following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians or to the letter of Ephesians? Coming in as I am, kind of running in the, really not even the middle, but uh, deeper into this letter, I did it myself just simply to get some bearing on our passage. I want us to do that this morning, get a bearing of the overall context of our passage we just had read for us. I want to note a few things as we get ready here, and that is that Paul starts in this letter on a high note. It's a lot of optimism. He uh, first uh, looks up, and so if you look there at chapter 1, verses uh, 3 through 9, let me read that for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose, to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Not only that, he has a plan. Verse 10, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. And we have a future in him, verse 11. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. And then he turns his attention to the actual church, uh, the church there in Ephesus, and look down at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1. For this reason, he says, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he ends chapter 1 with this incredibly optimistic look on the church. Look at verses 22 and 23. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus Christ fills the universe in all respects. That is, the entire universe is not only dependent upon him for every need, but he is also governed by him 
in the interest of the church for the good of the world. So chapter 1 gives us, in a sense, the kind of the foundation, uh, the eternal foundation of the church that transcends time. And then, if you've been here, chapter 2 then tells us the scope of the church, and the scope of the church is that it's going to take in all races. And then chapter 3, he unfolds the goal for the church, where we read in verse 10 of chapter 3, he says, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And then go down to verses 20 and 21. So he kind of hits off this, ends at this kind of high note. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's kind of like a coach's pep talk. Um, Before the game, big game. And so you leave the locker room hearing all that with no room in your thought that there is going to be a loss. And there isn't one for the church. For the Lord of the church is again in chapter 1, verse 21. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. But in all of this optimism, there is this one embarrassing fact. All of this is coming from a prisoner. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, just doesn't have that victorious sounding ring. Rather than being a message embraced by all, the civil and religious authorities deem Paul and his message and thus the church as harmful for the good of the cities and good for the culture. It is a message that is impeding human progress. So the chapters 4 and 5 and 6 feel more like uh, those one-minute coaches' timeouts. The team is, is coming off the field. Coach, we are getting tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Okay, okay, that, that's why I gave you the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the, the teachers. They will equip you. Listen to them. Get back in the game. Or a little bit later, time out, time out. And the team gathers around the coach again. What are you doing? <laughs> Stop imitating the opposition. Stop playing into their game plan. That is not the way you learned Christ. Put off your old self. Put away falsehood. Speak the truth. Now get back in there. And so chapters 4, 5, and 6 go on and on like that, this kind of sense that while chapters 1 and 3 are the already, this is what is true, chapters 4, 5, and 6 seem to be telling us, though, no, we're still in the not yet time. 
we're still in this, the realities of living in a world that is in rebellion to the king. So what we are learning here in Ephesians is that God's plan is to use the church to proclaim the good news that God reigns and that what the world needs is to become reconciled with the king, a reconciliation that was purchased by his son through the death of his own son, by, purchased by the king through the death of his own son, and is motivated by a love for those in rebellion. Uh, in rebellion. Or maybe to distill it down even more, the church is the plan. Or if we could even bring it down to this room, you, we, are the plan. For God to redeem the world. To which we are tempted to reply, uh oh. Rather than, amen. Which brings us to our passage. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, where we find at the center of this passage a command that is crucial to all that is swirling in and out of this passage, kind of like the pinwheel solar system that we are living in right now. Uh, everything is, there's things swirling in, verses 15 through 17, and then you're going to see things that are swirling out, verses 19 through uh, 21, but right there in the middle, we have, uh, we have verse 18, which says this, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirits. Be filled with the spirits. We must be a spirit-filled community. So what I want to do this morning is I just want us to see why this is necessary, why it's necessary that we're filled. And, and then if I have done a good job showing you from the passage why this is necessary, my hope is then that you will be answer, asking the question, compelled to consider, how do we do this? How do we obey this command, be filled with the Spirit? So with that, let me uh, lead us in a word of prayer and ask for God's help. Father, we... We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for chapters 1, 2, and 3, which tell us the reality, the already. Father, we are grateful for what you have done on our behalf, purchasing your church on your, for, for you, Father, for your glory, by giving of your Son to die for us on the cross that we might be raised up and have new life, that we might be people of light. And yet, Father, we confess as we're sitting here this morning if, if we're the plan, Father, we confess we're worried. But Father, thank you. You are wise and we are not. And you do indeed use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And so, Father, we pray that as we discover that this is your plan, we are your plan. We pray that you would be ministering to our hearts and our lives, that we would understand what it means to be filled, that we would understand what you have given for us to be working out that plan. So God, we would pray that you would help us to not only spiritually comprehend this passage, but we pray that you would convict us where necessary. 
And so, Father, we look forward to what you will be doing through your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So why must we, we be spirit-filled, a spirit-filled community? Let's begin with verses uh, 15 through 17. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, the first reason we must be spirit-filled is that the will of God is impossible. The will of God is impossible. See, look at what kind of life he is calling to us as a church. He says there at the beginning of verse 15, look carefully then. And that then takes us at least back to verse 8. Paul reminds the Ephesians that at one time they were people of darkness, but no longer. That they are defined as people as light, and it is out of this identity that he then commands them in verse 8, walk as children of light. As Christ has raised them from the death, from death of sin into light, life of light, they have every reason and ability to walk in the lights. So this being the case for the believers, we are to look carefully how we walk. The word carefully means uh, to be something, to do something accurately or with close attention. So this combination with look carefully and the fact that it also is an imperative, Paul is expressing the importance and urgency of keeping a close, uh, close watch not only on what we know, but also on how we live out our lives in the light of what we believe. And how would one describe this life? Well, Paul describes it for us. He says this will be a wise life, a life where godly principles are applied to everyday living. But when you consider that God tells us this in Isaiah 55, 8, well, let me just read it for you. 55, 8, Isaiah 55, 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. When you begin to consider that, and God is calling us to work that out, if we are relying or leaning upon the storehouse of our own wisdom, there's a good chance we're going to fall into that foolish category. The ability for us, apart from God, the ability of us to use our own wisdom that we have gained over time, there's no hope. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. The call of God is impossible because the will of God is impossible to know apart from the Spirit. And secondly, even if we do know it, the will of God is impossible to do apart from the Spirit. He's calling us to live lives of wisdom, making, what does he say there? Making the best use of our time. 
The word for time is, is the one, the Greek word there is one that's not referencing uh, that which is measured by hours, minutes, and seconds, but rather he's using the measurement of a fixed allocated season. So Paul is thinking about the time uh, that God has allotted to a human being either over their lifetime or a season of their life. See, there are, there are seasons, right? We're in. There are seasons of school or seasons of singlehood or se- uh, of seasons of parenting or seasons of grandparenting, seasons of working. And even in, in our working lives, we have seasons of working for particular uh, employers. Our days are numbered, and thus we ought to be making the best use of it. Uh, Moses wrote these words, uh, in Psalm, Psalm 90, 10 through 12, he wrote, the words of the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. I don't know what about people who are 90, where they fit in this. I'm supposed to be, they, they are counted. Uh, for even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So teach us, Moses writes, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Outside of outright disobedience to God's word, probably the most spiritually foolish thing a Christian can do is waste time and opportunity to fritter away life in trivia and in half-hearted service to the Lord. See, what we do is we make the assumptions that tomorrow exists. And many biblical texts stand as a warning beacon to those who think they will always have time to do what they should. When Noah and his family entered the ark and shut the door, the opportunity for any other person to be saved was lost. Or you go to the New Testament when Jesus was telling us about that successful and arrogant farmer who had grandiose plans to build bigger and better barns to store his crops. And God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they now be? Then Jesus finishes with the point of the story. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Our days are numbered, and so the call of God says, walk wisely. And you know how difficult that is in a world of second-by-second distractions given to you courtesy of that thing in your hand, in the palm of your hand. Matter of fact, the will of God is impossible to do apart from the Spirit. So we must be a Spirit-filled community. But secondly, the reason we need to be a Spirit-filled community is that, look there, verse 16 The days are evil. Like Moses, who realistically described our lifetime or seasons of life as one of toil and trouble, Paul writes, we are living in evil days. 
Think of some of the descriptions that you have already had over your time in this letter. If you go back to chapter 2, let's, let's look at verses 1 and 2. He says, you are dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See, we live in a world, he's seeming to write here, that is in opposition to the kingdom of God. And then he says, not only that, not only living in this kind of world, but we have an enemy, and he calls this enemy the prince of the power of the air. We have an enemy who hates the souls of all humanity. There is not a soul that is living today that the enemy does not hate. As a result, there are all sorts of doctrines. And don't get hung up on, the, on this word doctrine. Doctrine is simply uh, the set of beliefs and principles that we use to guide our lives. So everybody has doctrines. We may not be conscious of our doctrines. We may not be systematic in our doctrines. But every single human being has a doctrine. And right now, we're living out that doctrine. They're living out that doctrine right now. So don't get hung up on this word doctrine Look over chapter 4 at verse 14. Whereas Paul is telling us why he has given some for uh, certain gifting and ministries, he says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so the, the doctrine today that we are somewhat living in is the, this one called the expressive individualism, which has three kind of major components. The first component is this. Each of us determine our own individual meaning, that is, truth is found within oneself. Expressive individualism. And secondly, to be authentically human, we must be allowed to express that meaning. And then thirdly, seemingly, the essence of meaning is how one sees one's sexuality. This is the doctrine that seems to be ruling right now. That if you assert that there is a transcendent truth, outside of humanity, you will run into a wall of opposition. Or if you express concern to an individual's expression of meaning as dangerous to their souls, you run the risk of being called a bigot. Or if you suggest that the core of meaning is not within the realm of one's sexuality, but rather that your meaning is found in someone who is much bigger and better than our minds can even imagine, you'll be labeled as out of touch or simply be given some kind of prefix ended with phobia. The days are evil, but as 
Troublesome as it is to understand that we live in a world that is in opposition to the kingdom of God and have an enemy who hates the souls of all humanity, what is most sobering is the reality that we have opposition as near as our own flesh. We, us, in this room, are in the not yet portion of God's story whereby while he reigns and we have happily submitted to his rule, there is, there is within our flesh a lean towards insubordination and rebellion. We are prone, as we sing, we are prone to wander. We can relate to how Paul describes his own insubordination and outright rebellion. If you have your uh, Bible there in front of you, turn to Romans chapter 7. Um, a strangely comforting passage for us because I think we can appreciate what Paul has wrestled with because we've wrestled with this. Romans chapter 7. If you go to verse 15, uh, we'll just start there. It says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that the nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do, to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not once is what I keep on doing. <laughs> now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do not do who, who do it, sorry, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. <laughs> oh, can you not relate? I love how he describes, wretched man that I am. That's how we feel in those moments. We have opposition as near as our own flesh, thus we must be spirit-filled, a spirit-filled community. So, the will of God is impossible, apart from being spirit-filled. The days are evil, but now on a more positive note. <laughs> Let's Look at what swirls out of verse 18. Look at verses 19 through 21. The results are life-giving. The results are life-giving. See, as even as I had you read with me Romans chapter 7, I did note something in Romans 7, and that is that as I was taken by the fact that he does intimate a beautiful vision of what uh, life is, of what he wants. In, back in Romans 7, he did say, he said, I do not do what I want. So he has once. Verse 18, he said, I desire to do what is right. Verse 9, you might have picked up, 
the good I want. Or verse 22, he says, I delight, I delight in the law of God. He wants, he delights in good things, things that God wants for us. See, that's what God wants. God wants for us happy feet. Happy feet. My, my sister, that's what she calls it. My sister has been a public school teacher for over 35 years. Um, and 95% of that time has been in the lower grades. Kindergarten, first grade, and second grade. And she says, when I ask her, why do you keep doing this? Because of the happy feet. See, she loves those grades because the children haven't yet lost their happy feet. Um, The brokenness of the world around them hasn't taken away the lightness of their step. They kind of have a song in their hearts. They seem to be kind of grateful for the little things of life, you know, the little butterfly coming out of the cocoon. Um, they're, not, they're not really worried, you know, they, they understand how the, the classroom works, and so for the most part, you know they, know, they know they need to kind of help each other out, and so they submit to each other, kind of a feel to it. They, she says, yeah, they just kind of have, you know, it's kind of fun to, to, to kind of hide away in their happy little world. <laughs> happy feet. Wouldn't you like to have those back again? Well, I think that's what he's saying here in verses 19 through 21. What swirls out of this command, a song from our hearts, a thankfulness for the little things of life, a setting aside of our rights. See, a spirit-filled life results in there, verse 19, it results in a song in our heart. He, he says, uh, let's address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your, in, uh, to the Lord uh, with your heart. It, it seems to be that the spirit-filled life produces music. And notice where that song comes from. It comes from the heart, not your mouth. In other words, good voice, Cannot carry a tune, it don't matter. The location from where the song is coming is your heart, and nothing is more indicative of a contented soul and a happy heart than the expression of psalm. And if you think about it, when you read the psalms, there's a number of times in the psalms where we're told to write a new song. And I think part of the newness of the song is is that song is new in comparison to the old death tune of self-righteousness, self-satisfaction, and self-centeredness that we hear every day on our Spotify list. No, our song comes from a new heart. And who are they to sing to? Well, they're they're to sing to one another. Now, this doesn't discount you singing in the shower or in the car or other places that you sing 
by yourself. But ultimately, the goal is, is that the way that as we're spirit-filled, we're a spirit-filled community, the way that we kind of gather up, uh, you know, the, really the, the enjoyment of this is that we are singing to one another. See, this is why we go to concerts. You can listen to music in your own home. You can listen to it in your, in your own ears without anybody else hearing it. But we tend to want to still go back to concerts because the, the, the joy of music is doing it with other people who love the author of the music. And so we want to sing it together, and so we sing out loud. And so what do we do? We gather. We've gathered to enjoy the author of the music, this new song in our hearts. And we sing, whom do we sing to? Well, the passage tells us we sing to the Lord. Happily, the one who makes us happy is the happy receiver of our singing. (laughs) And we use all kinds of songs. Psalms, literally the psalms set to music. Hymns, these were the particularly in the New Testament, the early church, these were the songs that were written about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have the catch-all spiritual songs covering a broad category of expressing spiritual truths. You know, what's really amazing is that there's going to be one day when the Lord himself is going to sing right along with us. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. I will tell of your name the Lord says, I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ says, I will sing your praise, Father, right along with them. Isn't that amazing? Good news. A spirit-filled life will result in what we want. We just want a song in our heart. Secondly, uh, a spirit-filled life will result in thankfulness. Thankfulness for, uh, for the little things. Uh, see there, verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God in the Father, to uh, God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this one's an easy one to break down. A spirit-filled life will always be thankful. Uh, and this, So this is really just talking about the timing. So if you catch a spirit-filled individual unawares, there's a good chance you're going to hear something thankful or their gratitude. Or if you happen to walk in on a spirit-filled congregation, there's a good chance you're going to hear thankfulness. So then it is not surprising that the spirit-filled people are thankful for everything. Now, in in my notes here, I said, well, we're thankful for the small things in life. And the reason I put that is because 98% of our life is lived in the small. That's pretty much all the time. So a spirit-filled life is thankful for those perceived moments where life is going as how we hoped But I think more significant is that the spirit-filled life will be able to be thankful when life is not going on how we hoped, knowing that the providential smile is hiding behind the cloud of despair. 
When you know that the God, the Father, speaks over you the same benediction that he spoke over his son, when he said to his son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, when that becomes your benediction, you can be thankful for anything. Because we now know that those those clouds have nothing to do with his approval. See, Jesus said, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those, uh, to those who ask him? Or we read in James chapter 1, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Many times those good gifts are wrapped in, Moses' words, toil and trouble. That's the wrapping God puts in his good gifts, over his good gifts. And so that's why he ends that verse there to say that we do this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. For it is the Lord Jesus Christ who made it possible for the Son's approval, the approval the Son had for him, now to be our approval. Jesus Christ lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, so that we can have his life, his approval. The Father's approval of the Son is ours. And so the toil and trouble has nothing to say about the Father's approval. Matter of fact, He gives us good gifts of toil and trouble. And we can give thanks for the small things and the big. You know, there's nothing more soul-sucking than to be around a complainer. (laughs) And there's nothing more life-giving than be around a person who's grateful And that's who God calls us to be. Thirdly, a spirit-filled community will set aside their fight for rights. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now I want to say, verse 21 is really a transitional verse in this letter where Paul is going to get into the discussion of various relationships within the church which will push back the darkness of our world and bring renewal to his kingdom. And foundational to that discussion is this verse. See, the Greek word for submitting originally was a military term meaning to arrange under or to rank under. So spirit-filled Christians rank themselves under one another. And so the main idea is that of relinquishing one's rights within divinely ordered relationships. And I don't think this is really speaking about mutual submission, although one another can refer to mutual submission, but rather I think it's what it's referring to is that the one another is to be understood in the context of divinely ordered relationships where there is one in whom has authority and leadership responsibility. And he's saying you don't need to fight for your rights in these contexts. 
Now, we live in a culture that has this, this thing called the Bill of Rights. And we live in a social media world that says you need to fight for your rights. And those are probably true at times, and Bill of Rights is good. But there are ordained relationships where he says, you don't need to fight. You don't need to fight for rights. You can rest. And I don't know about you, but I'm tired of fighting for my rights all the time. It's tiresome. So he says, well, within these divine relationships that you'll be looking at in the future, we are people who do no longer have to fight for those rights in those. And the way and the reason that we do this is, well, look at that last phrase. The reason we do this is we do this out of reverence for Christ. So the question is, why ought we to submit? Well, could I be so simplistic and bold to say, because he says so? Because Jesus said so? And he is the one in charge of the universe? To whom I'm going to be accountable to? That's why we do it. But there's something very freeing to the mind and soul when I simply stop fighting for my rights and simply obey. A spirit-filled community will set aside their fight for rights and submit to divinely ordered relationships. Okay, why do we need to be a spirit-filled community? Well, the will of God is impossible without the Spirit. The days are evil, and the results are life-giving. All of these reasons are swirling around the center command. Be filled with the Spirit. So how? Well, in the verse 17, he says, understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, one thing is clear. The will of the Lord is, in this passage, is that we do not get drunk with wine. <laughs> um, but that's not the primary command but it is, it is a command, it is right, is we should not get drunk with wine. But it's more about an analogy that we get, that we all get. See, drunkenness, something that you have either directly or indirectly have experienced, helps us grasp the essence of the command, be filled with the Spirit's. Alcohol has uh, a number of effects on the human body. It can calm. It can give courage. It can lighten the load. It can also lead to 
debauchery. Not a word we use, at least I don't use very often. Debauchery means an extreme indulgence in bodily pleasure that easily leads to death. So rather than getting drunk with wine and being controlled by it to one's destruction, Paul commands, be filled with the Spirit whereby you live. Whereby you live, you really live eternal life in ordinary time. Eternal life, you really get to live eternal life in ordinary time. Now, there's a few things we need to know about this verb. First, it's the only command we have in relationship to the Holy Spirit. It's the only command we're supposed to be obedient to in terms of the Holy Spirit, be filled. Secondly, the command here is in a present form. It's a conscious continuation. It is an ongoing command. And so I think the best analogy that we could think of is the one that Paul gives, walking, chapter 4, verse 1. So how do you walk? Well, walking involves moving one step at a time. So the Christian life is like a moment-by-moment dependence upon the Holy Spirit's And then just one more thing to note about this word. In the Greek, it is in the passive form, so it is something that is done to us as we submit. So the Spirit of God is the active agent filling us more and more with the person of Jesus Christ, with who he is, his life becoming more and more of our life, our life more and more shaped by what he likes, that we're growing up into his stature. Paul says. When we are filled, there's a remarkable change that occurs. Our desires change, our standards change, our objectives change, our fears change, our vision changes. So knowing that, how are we to be filled? Well, let me give you just, we're, we're ending here. Let me give you two Ps. Two Ps. Priority and position. Priority and position. Priority. It begins with making it a priority in the verse 17 to know the will of the Lord. And the source of knowing what the will of the Lord is is His Word. See, in the parallel letter that Paul wrote, wrote these two letters both about the same time, the parallel letter wrote uh, that was written to the Colossian church, there are a lot of similarities between these two letters. And in comparing them, when we get to this section, this is what Paul writes, Colossians 3.16. He writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He doesn't talk at all about the Holy Spirit there. He doesn't tell them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
See, what we do is when we, we make these comparisons, we look at these two parallel letters, we discover that when Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, he says, let the word of, the, the word of God richly dwell in you. That's what it means. You've got to start there. The word of God is where the riches are found to know his will. So to be filled with the Spirit of God, we must make it a priority. We must, must arrange our day around spending time in God's word. Second P, position. Position. Position your heart to submit. That is, what? That is to come under God's authority and arrange your life under his word. Which will require faith and repentance, two sides of the same coin of the ongoing transformation of our lives. So be filled with the Spirit is a moment-by-moment positioning of our heart to trust in God's Word, to repent when we know we're running against it, and to uh, range our next step according to it. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So that we can, in one sense, finish this way. Look carefully then how you walk, Paul writes, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of your time. (laughs) See, what we're learning, what you're learning here in Ephesians is that God's plan is to use the church to proclaim the good news that God reigns. That what the world needs is to become reconciled with the king. A reconciliation that was purchased by the king through the death of his own son, motivated by his love for all those in rebellion. To distill it down even more, the church is the plan. And to bring it near to home into this room, we are the plan for God to redeem his world. To which we are tempted to reply, "Uh uh-oh. But God says, amen. Be filled with the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for this command. Because as I look into my own life, into my own heart, as we look into our own heart and our own lives, Father, if it's just about us somehow screwing up the energy and the ability to work out your plan, Father, literally we are saying, uh-oh. This doesn't sound like a good plan. But Father, we are thankful that you say, oh no, amen. You are the plan. Be filled with my spirit. Father, help us. We pray, help us to take priority, change our priorities, that we would spend time in your word. 
that we'd grow in that time, that we'd grow in the quantity of that time, and that, Father, we would grow in the quality of that time. And so, Father, I know here there are people here who are sitting who don't spend any time in your word between now and next Sunday. So, Father, we pray that you would change that, that it would be two minutes a day. And then, Father, four minutes a day and then longer and longer and longer as they find the riches. So, Father, we pray, help us to prioritize our lives around your word. And then, Father, we pray, position us that we would be ready to submit, to arrange our life under the truth that's contained there, that we would repent where we are running contrary to your word or where you're thinking wrongly. Help us to see that and help us to repent and to believe the good news again, that you save sinners like us. Father, we thank you for this gathering, and we are thankful, Father, for the Lord's Supper of which you gave to us that we would be able to again renew our covenant with you. We're grateful, Father, that you have not failed. You have, your promises have not stopped. You continue to tell us that our sins are forgiven by the shedding of the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the giving of his body. And so, Father, as we take this cup and as we uh, eat this bread, we are reminded again that uh, that's the plan for our forgiveness. And that, Father, as we come forward, we're thankful that we are under that blessing. This is my child in whom I'm well pleased. Father, his blessing, our blessing, because of the cross. So we thank you, Father. Examine our hearts. Help us to see even now of where we need to confess. And as we come forward, Father, may we take it in a way that brings honor and blessing to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we enjoy together. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.